0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. This is kind of a special episode. Here I am waiting in Paul Feig's conference room in his offices in fabulous downtown Burbank, California, waiting for him to come in. I normally do all my podcasts at our home studio at 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard in Century City in Los Angeles. But today, Paul, because he's promoting Ghostbusters and doing so many different things, that he could only do it here. And I'm so grateful that he is doing this interview because I know for a fact that he's probably turned down a number of different interviews and things that were far more important, I'm sure, than me. But I'm very grateful that he is doing this and hopefully the word of mouth helped a little bit. Not just the word of mouth of the executives who've done the show and the artists who've done the show, but also the word of mouth of you guys out there who have been so wonderful and so supportive. And I will say in every show, I don't care, I am so grateful to all of you and so thankful. It means a lot. And I am also very, very excited to be going back up to Montreal for the second time in three years. And I'm very proud to announce that I just heard from somebody who is one of the most iconic comedians and actors and hosts in the business who has confirmed that he is going to be doing the live podcast in Montreal. And I'm talking about Howie Mandel and tickets are on sale at the Montreal Just for Laughs website and you can go there and get them. It's a limited seating there. I think it only holds about 300 people, maybe even 200, and I hope you can get tickets if you're up in Montreal. I would love to see you say hello, and it's going to be an amazing, amazing show. But what I normally do is I normally look at my guest and think of something to say for the cold open, but I want to have as much time with Paul as possible, so I thought, I just look around this conference room and feel the vibe with all the people working here and did a little research and came up with what I thought would be a good thing to touch on today, which is something that I always try to stress to everyone who listens. It's one of the most important things, and it may seem like I'm a broken record, but I think Paul Feig's career will highlight and put an exclamation point on it from a guy who... Started here in Hollywood as a tour guide for Universal Studios and then has made last four movies grossed close to a billion dollars worldwide. And I see it as the way Paul has done it is through incredible hard work using every single cylinder in his engine, writing, producing, acting, directing even stand-up comedy, but the biggest cylinder in his engine that I see that's really propelling him in a huge way is relationships, and this is a man who's forged some of the greatest relationships with some of the most unbelievable actors, actresses, writers, directors, producers in the world, and just to give you an example what it means to create great relationships, when your projects go forward or anything you're doing goes forward. Let's just take a little cross-section of some of the people that he's had great relationships with that have stood the test of time and you can see evidence of in his projects. Rose Byrne, incredibly talented actress. He's worked with in Spy and Bridesmaids. Melissa McCarthy, he's worked with four times bridesmaids the spy the heat ghostbusters and he's even working on a fifth project with her right now Kristen wig he's worked on four projects with bridesmaids knocked up walk hard the dewey cox story and ghostbusters and finally judd apatow Worked with him six times, Knocked Up, Bridesmaids, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, Undeclared, Freaks and Geeks, and the aforementioned Heavyweights. That's an incredible resume of relationships that have added up to so much success. And when you're having great relationships with people, your life is better. When you're having great relationships professionally, your career gets better and better and you move forward and higher and get more praise and you get more respect and more people want to work with you because you forge those relationships in a way that people feel safe with you they do their best work and in turn you do your best work it's like playing tennis You never want to play tennis with somebody who's not as good as you. You want to play tennis with people who are better than you so that you can get to the level that they are. And all of these people that I mentioned are at the highest possible level. So before Paul comes in here, I should just wrap this up by saying that I think one of the most important things, if it's not obvious through this cold open, is wherever you are in whatever business you're working in, create those relationships with talented, hardworking, incredible people. Whatever you do, align yourself with those people. The people that when you see their work, you say to yourself, wow, I hope I can be perceived as the kind of person who can do that level of work. And... If I go out and do what I do alone, I know I'm great, but if I do it with these people that I forge these relationships with, I'll feel like I can walk on water and I'll be invincible. And if you haven't noticed lately, Paul Feig is invincible. And if you want the kind of career that he has, create extraordinary relationships.
2: Here we go in three, two... We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
2: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the
0: air! Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited today. My guest, Paul Feig. I'm here in his office, as I rarely do a podcast outside of my office. But now (laughs) that I'm in this podcast studio here... I realized that I'm coming here every week. This is incredible. (laughs) I love it here. It's beautiful. And without further ado, I'm going to give Paul the proper introduction. And after I'm done, somebody will wake him up and we'll do the podcast. (laughs) I'm very excited about this, Barry. I do a very extensive introduction. And here goes. Paul Feig is a mega talented, multi-Emmy nominated artist and creator, simultaneously working successfully as author, filmmaker, writer, producer, and director whose films have grossed over a billion dollars worldwide. That's right, I said that right, over a billion dollars. A graduate of USC Film School, Feig was the winner of the school's Jack Oakey Award for comedy and film. After USC, he worked as a script reader for Taxi Driver producer Michael Phillips, until he went on the $25,000 Pyramid and won $29,000, which fueled his stand-up career. (laughs) The stand-up led to many roles as an actor on iconic TV shows like The Facts of Life, New Heart, 30-something, It's Gary Shandling's show, Roseanne, Ellen, and 26 episodes on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Mm -hmm. What he says is his first break, but I believe, actually... It was another thing, which I'll share in a second. (laughs) He also worked on films like Paul Zlansky's Ski Patrol and Tom Hanks' That Thing You Do. But it could be argued that his first big break came when he got a role on the 1995 movie Heavyweights, working alongside Ben Stiller and hanging out with co-writer of the film Judd Apatow. This led to an extraordinary relationship with Judd that has stood the test of time, starting with their collaboration on the beloved and critically acclaimed series Freaks and Geeks, That Paul created and Apatow executive produced, which launched the careers of Seth Rogen, James Franco, Jason Segel, and the Time magazine proclaimed one of the hundred greatest shows of all time. For his work on the show, Feig was nominated for two Comedy Writing Emmy Awards, one for the pilot episode and one for the series finale, which he also directed. This segued into Feig directing multiple episodes of a plethora of television series, including Arrested Development, Weed's 30 Rock, Mad Men, as well as co-executive producer on Nurse Jackie and The Office, which earned him an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Direction in a Comedy Series and the Directors Guild of America Award for Direction in a Comedy Series. Feig also had the honor of directing Steve Carell's final episode in The Office. In the film world as a director, writer, producer Feig started with the independent film Life Sold Separately, followed by I Am David, about an 11-year-old boy who escapes from a Bulgarian labor camp. He followed that up with the family comedy Unaccompanied Minors, and then reunited with Apatow again in the monstrous hit movie Bridesmaids that grossed close to $300 million, globally garnered Academy Award nominations for Best Supporting Actress and Best Original Screenplay, and starred Kristen Wiig. Rose Byrne, Maya Rudolph, John Hamm, and Melissa McCarthy, whose relationship with Feig created two other incredibly successful movies, *The Heat* starring Sandra Bullock, which grossed over 230 million worldwide, and *Spy*, which was nominated for two Golden Globe awards, which has earned over 235 million dollars across the globe. <laughs> this was Feig and McCarthy's third collaboration, one in which he wrote, directed and produced through his production company, Feig Co. Entertainment, which has found an incredible niche, bringing extraordinary female-driven comedies to the world's audiences. Feig also produced the Golden Globe-nominated film, The Peanuts Movie. In addition to his film and television work, Feig is an accomplished author of two comedic memoirs released by Random House, Kick Me, Adventures in Adolescence, and Superstud, or How I Became a 24-year-old virgin. The latter became a New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller, and he also did two other young adult science fiction novels, which I can't wait to give my kids, Ignatius McFarlane Frequenaut and Ignatius McFarlane Frequency Freakout. (laughs) Feig also collaborated with Yahoo on the critically acclaimed original series Other Space which marked his return to television, creating the series and serving as its executive producer. His latest movie, very excited for this, is a reboot, as he would call it, of the historic movie Ghostbusters, starring original actors Sigourney Weaver, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and newcomers to the franchise, Chris Hemsworth, Cade McKinnon, Leslie Jones, as well as old friends Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy. Relationships, everybody, which opens Friday, July 15th. Please welcome a man who was named one of Esquire's best dressed men in Hollywood. Yes.
3: Paul Feed. Thank you, Barry. My gosh. Wow. I have to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I've done too much. <laughs> it's so exciting
0: being here. You know, I'm so glad I didn't dress up because I know I would never compare you to where you are right fabulous. now. Fabulous. You look fantastic. I'm at sir. least matching. Yeah. I, I, exactly. look, you I look, look like good. a Jewish cowboy today. It's, it's frightening. <laughs> you look great. (laughs) I love the pin, though. You just everything. The the tie matches the handkerchief and the suit is incredible.
3: It never ends. (laughs) My my life is very uh, wrapped up in really ridiculous (laughs) things like like my clothing and my style. I I love it. I just find it very fun to to dress up.
0: No, but what I remember most about growing up and hearing the stories of comedians who used to do The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Mm -hmm. it was very important to wear a suit and tie when you did your debut on The Tonight Show because Johnny felt that you needed to treat the art of stand-up with respect and dignity, and he wanted you on the show. Meanwhile, Mick Jagger could go on the show in a t-shirt and ripped jeans and that was okay. Right. But a comedian, he felt needed to be a certain way because you go on most sets and you've mm-hmm. been an actor on many, many different projects. Yeah. And the guys there with acid wash jeans, yeah. New Balance sneakers, the mm-hmm. T-shirt that looks like he worked under his car for 16 hours. <laughs>
3: exactly. In a baseball cap <laughs> backwards
0: sometimes. <laughs> so how did you decide and what was the motivation to go to the set and immediately when you started directing and mm-hmm. present an image that was the classiest that anybody could... Well, it was a long process. There was a few
3: different inroads to it. I mean, as a kid, I, I was way into style um, and got into suiting and all that because I was a Groucho Marx fanatic. And as a kid, my, I, my mom gave me a, a biography on him. And I'm I like nine years old, I think, and uh, even younger than that, I think, and was reading it. And one of the things that stuck with me is it said that Groucho never trusted any man who didn't dress dress up. And so, of course, when your hero says that you're like, oh, I have to do that. I have to dress up like Groucho would and started getting into GQ and all that stuff and looking at stuff. And my mom, I was an only child and she would just sort of uh, anything I, I got interested in. She would always encourage uh, with great gusto. And so she loved the idea of like taking me down to the fancy mall. And uh, I got a three piece Pierre Cardin suit that she bought me that made my dad go crazy. He was so angry because, you know, I was like nine year eight or nine years old. He's like He's going to grow out of it in six months. And I did. But oh, what a great six months they were <laughs> walking around in a three piece suit like a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, i like go into stores, you know, I'd go to the grocery store, dress in my suit. and I just, you know, ladies would look down and just laugh. And I was like, how, how dare you? <laughs> Pearls before swine. How dare you? <laughs> laugh at me all day. But but I so I always loved it. But then, you know, kind of got out of it, uh, you know, and I got into my 20s and all that. And then um, it was after we did Freaks and Geeks where I really connected again with my High school years because, you know, I was redredging up all the memories of that. So I grew my hair out and would just wear, you know, jeans and a T-shirt and like a Oxford shirt over the top, just loose and uh, felt like I was back in those days. But when I got out of that and started going out and pitching ideas for new shows and taking meetings I would go to these meetings dressed like that, and they always sit you on the low couch. There's always somehow I just this happened to me yesterday. I had a meeting somewhere, and they still put you on the low couch, Well they hey, hate because they all sit in real chairs, so they're up high, and you're down with your knees in your face. You know, so I'm on the couch. And I'm that's dressed. why I bring a stadium chair with
0: me to my pitches. That's what
3: you got to do. I'm telling you. I know. I, I want one of those like tennis judges ones, so I can sit and look down on everybody. Uh, but I'm so I'm sitting there, and just everybody's in suits and ties, and you know, the women are dressed, for, you know, very business and great. And there I am as like kind of the, the artist. And I just immediately hated that dynamic. I hated that dynamic of like, well, here I am. I'm the clearly identifiable as the creative type. And they're, you know, giving me notes and, you know, or just kind of, you know, espousing things from on high to me. And I'm writing and, you know, I'm with my knees in my face. And I'm like, I don't like this. I don't like this power balance. I want to dress like them because I used to anyway. And it's like, and I'm an adult, at that point, I was in my, you know, heading into my late 30s. And said, "I'm just going to do. It. I'm going to buy a bunch of suits." So I went to the mall and bought a bunch of kind of cheap suits at the mall, and went to my first meeting dressed in a suit. And ironically, somehow, some memo went out in Hollywood that they got tired of being called the suits. They were too identifiable as being the ones in charge, and so they were all going to start wearing jeans and t-shirts. So I literally get to the meeting the first time I'm wearing a suit and I come in and everyone's in jeans and t-shirts. <laughs> and you would think they would go like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm mean, that." No, the dynamic was, oh, look at look at the, the yokel from Michigan who thinks you got to wear your Sunday best clothes to come to a meeting. Isn't that cute? And isn't he, you know, backwards and stuff? And I would but I just sit in there and go like, you know what? I like this dynamic. I think I look better than you guys. <laughs> and I feel like maybe I'm, you know, I just felt more professional. And, uh, you know, my dad wore a suit and tie every day of his life and he worked, you know, in an armed, owned an army surplus store. So he was back in the stock room picking up boxes, but we wearing, wearing a cheap suit and tie, but still suit and tie and uh, just kind of stuck with it. You know, but then when I got into directing, which was right around that time. You know, first you go like, oh, OK, well, I got to dress down because I'm going to be, you know, down in the, in the dirt and on the floor and all this stuff. And I go like, well, no, wait, I'm very few times am I down on the floor or, you know, down on my knees when I'm when I'm directing. And uh, I thought, let's let's keep it going because I see pictures of old Hollywood, you know, and you see Hitchcock and, you know, I see the crew and they're wearing ties, you know, and hats and, and you know dress pants and that kind of thing. Just got to there were no jeans back then. But I just I like the look of that. I go like this. this I always when I watch a movie, it was like when I was listen to the radio as a kid. And I always imagined, like, the imagine the DJ was kind of dressed all cool and everything. And then you see pictures of them and they're all like sweaty <laughs> guys and t-shirts and they look terrible. And you're like, oh, that's not the voice I wanted associated with that body and that look and stuff. And so I felt the same about movies. And so I was like, I'm just going to dress. I want to bring that same level of respect because I'm, I'm working with the most talented people in the world. You know, and I would say, you know, if you get on a ship and the captain's wearing sweatpants and a T-shirt, I'd I'd get off that ship. (laughs)
0: I'd be nervous about that ship. And I feel the same way. And uh, it's just fun. Was there a director when you were acting that really influenced you? Obviously, in the early years, I believe one of your biggest influences was Woody Allen. But Mm. when you started acting... Was there one director that you can point to the the way their style of directing for you that you said, hmm, if I become a director, I want to adopt that kind of style of how that person is? Well,
3: that's interesting. I mean, it's when I think about it, I mean, I worked with some really good directors because I I was always on sitcoms. So, you know, it was a different type of directing. But ironically, it was uh, Robbie Benson, I thought, was just such a gentleman. I uh, was when I was doing in t- the Teenage Witch. I just liked his demeanor. I thought was really great. And you know, I, I liked all the directors I worked with. But he would especially felt like having been an actor, I could tell he understood some of the stuff I was going through. You know, I worked with some people. I did commercials, especially one director in particular was kind of known for being a bit of a terror. And he was Joe Pitka. Well, uh, that could be the name. <laughs> <laughs> and I did something with it. Yeah. And it was just like and he was like yelling at these people. And even me, he was like, no. And it's just like, oh, God, and was, I get so Befuddled when like that is going on, and I'm like, I can't, I can't create that situ- work situation for people, especially people are trying to be funny, and so just when I just want to be gentle that way, and then when I was, started producing and we were working on on Freaks and Geeks, I really fell in love with uh, the way that Ken Kwapis works because he's just he's so wonderful and gentle. He doesn't say action; he goes, "Go ahead, go ahead." <laughs> Which I tried to do, I tried to adopt that. It's so funny. When the first time I went and did Arrested Development. Um, I was I, I'm going to do that. So I get there, and my first scene is with Portia de Rossi, who's awesome. And so, you know, go, okay, go ahead. And so we get a few takes in, and she goes. All right, let's start. Do uh, you want to call action or, or say that thing you say instead of action? I was like, all
0: right, well, that's Ken's thing. I'm, I'm just going to say action from now on. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> so you work with the directors that were difficult. And I remember I mentioned Joe Pitka. You didn't mention him. That's right. And I remember I was involved in the commercial for Jay Moore, where he was the agent for Diet Pepsi. And... Joe was screaming at everybody and swearing at everybody. And he was a huge, huge hulking man, probably a 300 pound, six foot nine guy with long, long gray hair Mm -hmm. and really scary and intimidating man, but the greatest commercial director probably of all time. And you wonder how he got away with these things in terms of the way the laws are today. And And I remember Jay, and it was one of the moments, I couldn't believe it, but it was so incredible, was he saw him screaming at everybody and he walked right up to him and in a loud voice in front of everybody, he said, hey, we don't play that shit here, Chewbacca. (laughs) Oh my God. These people are my people. Wow. And you treat them with respect, we treat you with respect or we're not working anymore. Wow, nice. And I was stunned by that because you don't ever want an actor talking back to a director. Right. But from that moment on, there were no more outbursts. Wow, really? And the executives were there and everything. And so let's go with the reverse. Sometimes you hire an actor who's brilliant. Hmm. You see their work and it's like, oh my God, I have to have this person in the film. And a lot of times, maybe a friend of yours makes a call to you and says, You know, I know you're about to hire this actor, but Mm -hmm. with me, they were very difficult. And you think to yourself, well, thank you, but I'm going to be able to. (laughs) I'm different. I'm I'm different. (laughs) How do you handle it when there's an actor on the set who is brilliant that you've hired and you don't really know them personally? And then they become that person Mm. similar to the director that I described. What's your process for that
3: I've been very very lucky
0: that I have avoided that situation for the most part it was more
3: when I was a TV director movies I've had just the greatest time because I really vet I vet and I listen to that Uh, And I'll do research, too. I won't just take one person's word for that. I really will kind of look around because sometimes, yeah, you go like, well, yeah, maybe their technique is such that it put the actor off. But if I get multiple reports, I'll I'll steer away from it because I just think a set needs to be a a fun environment and we shouldn't be tortured. But in television, occasionally, you know, you're coming into a set group and I would get warnings and sometimes it worked very well. I mean, I don't want to name any names, but like one actress in particular I was really warned about. And I remember... Saying to them, you know, I was still a week before I was going to start. I was just starting my prep, and I said, "Take me down right now. I want to go and meet this person." And so went and you know just talked to her and said, "I'm such a fan of yours," you know, and it's very sincere. It wasn't Machiavellian or anything. It was just because I am a fan. But was like, I just I want to say what a fan I am of yours, and I'm really looking forward to working. and Let me please let me know if there's anything you need, you know, any ways you work, or if and always let me know if there's something I'm doing wrong, and like just the light turned on. She was like, Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. And we, we had the greatest time working. And she had her moments when she would kind of have little things more about other actors or other things going on, but I became more her confidant. So I was able to kind of go, Oh yeah. And then see the other people rolling their eyes at me and go like, don't worry. I got it. I got it. I'll take care of this. So that worked well. And, And there was really only, I mean, there was one actor I worked with who was, who actress, who was, very well known for being difficult. But again, I, I, having been an actor, some people are just out of control. But very rarely do you find people who are that out of control. There's a reason why they're out of control. And what I find, it's mostly because people are scared or they're afraid of being directed poorly or made to do something they, they won't look good at doing.
0: It's interesting you said that because I was one of the producers on a movie where a very huge actress was in an emotional scene and the director kept coming over and saying, listen, can you cry in this take? Yeah. Can you cry in this take? And she went to her trailer and she stayed there because she didn't want to be told to cry in an emotional moment. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's exact same thing that happened with this actress, because again, I was
3: like, there's gotta be a way in. So went and kind of did the same thing, of just like, went to meet her and say, you know, what a fan. And, and cause again, I am sincerely a fan of these people I work with. <clears throat> and, um, but then, kind of was trying to figure out my way in. And at first she was very nice, but then I started doing things similar to that. There was one, the moment in particular was there was some scene and she was so good. And we did the first take and she kind of smiled at the end. And I thought it oh, was so great. So I was like, Oh, you know, I loved it at the end. If you do that again, where you smile at the end, she's like results, results. She got really upset. And I was like, wait, what does that mean? It's like, Oh, I see. It's because I'm just saying, do this physical Thing that has no—it's not an acting direction. It is a like—it's like, oh, can you you know walk over there when you do? Like, what's the motivation for doing that? And then you know, there's a lot of directors and people behind the you know scenes like to make fun of, oh, the motivation. What's my motivation? But you need that. She needs that. So it's, I learned very quickly. Oh, here's what I got need to do is like, oh, I think. Well, I think at the end of the scene, I think what he tells you gives you real joy about what you're feeling. And so I think you should go with that. I think you should, you know, really allow yourself to feel, feel happy about what happened in the scene at the end. And she's oh, okay, great. And then she the end, you know, but I don't go like, oh brother, what a nut. I got to come up with this stupid thing. I go like, no, that's their process because when she would then do the performance, it was unbelievable. I mean, we had one time where she had to do this scene that had a, it had a very rude line in it from the other actor and she just hated She was the first season of the show. She didn't know if it was going to be a good show or not. So the trust level was just all over the place. And the, the network and the showrunners were like, she's got to say this line. We're, this is where it's a dirty show. We got to have this controversial thing. It's like, oh, God. So she didn't <laughs> want to do it. You know, and it's just like, so I'm like, I, I, you got to do it. You know? I need to do it. So she's like, well, I have to rehearse and walked away. And we were shooting outside, and uh, the sun was going down, and she just went over with the other actor. And I just hear she's just sitting, shooting the shit with a guy on on a bench. I'm like, she's, this is her revenge. She's gonna take her revenge on us. And so I was like, oh my God, the sun's going down. He's like, you gotta get her in the thing. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? To the point where I got like, I probably had like one take before we lost all the light. So I was like, please, can we just do this? And she's like, all right. So she comes over, does it. I'm like, I'm so dead. She does one take. It's the most brilliant take you've ever (laughs) seen in your life. I mean, just everything was perfect. I was like, we got it. Moving on. So that's why I understood because I felt like I thought the line was was too crude too, but this is the way they wanted the show. And when you're a director for hires, what you got to do. But just going like when you work with really talented people, I'll put up with a lot if they give me something great. I've worked with, you know, just occasionally people who aren't great and you try to give them a direction. There was one other actor in particular, I won't talk, I can't name names because I'd be out of the business, but who was very combative. And but brilliantly funny and good. And so I remember like doing the first scene is like, and he did something in rehearsal that I thought was really funny and everybody cracked up. So he did a couple of takes. He's all right, we got it. And I was like, Oh, you know what? Actually, I think if you do that, you did this one thing in rehearsal where you and he's like, no, no, I don't want to do it. And it's like, yeah, but I think, no, and it's like, Oh, okay. So that's when I go see you. I, you're saying I can't, you, you know more than I do from inside you than I know watching you and going like, you know what, I can make you 10% better. You're great. I can make you 10% better if you did this one thing. And that's the kind of people I go like, you know what, I, that's, that's what I try to avoid now.
0: Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Who do you trust that can observe you? And say, Paul, I think you can be 10% better. (laughs) Uh,
3: You know what? I have a group around me. I mean, my my producing partner, Jesse Henderson, definitely uh, is is someone who I trust implicitly. There's people, you know, Judd, I always felt that way
0: about. um, So in other words, these people feel comfortable coming up to you, even though your movies have made a billion (laughs) dollars and say, you know... (laughs) On this particular thing here, I'd like to make a request. I think it would be better if you did it this way, and and they're comfortable saying that to you. Oh, yeah.
3: I, I mean, you... I make a a, a habit of studying the careers of people I admire and studying particularly when they went off the rails. And you can point every single time to when they stop listening to people. That's when it dies. Because, especially in comedy, when you're the guy going, you don't tell me what's funny. I know what's funny. You are dead. You are dead. Start the timer. Your career is going to be over. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow, but it's coming up.
0: And most comedians, when they go into sitcoms, have that attitude. Oh, totally. Because there's been
3: stories of people who are good at it. I mean, when I worked with Roseanne she was famous for that but because she was brilliant at it. she when she had those notes, they were she was spot on, even if they, she didn't find the exact reason why she knew something was off.
0: Most and, people don't know this, but Tom Werner and Marcy Carsey, the producers of the show, were not even allowed on the set. Oh, God! really? I didn't even know that. <laughs> Matt Williams, who created the show, was released after 13 episodes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, but it's. But she turned out to
3: she was still right. get it right. Yeah, she nailed it. And I and ironically, at that same time, when I was an actor, I was on an, another sitcom that had a uh, a famous actor who would become. <laughs> I can't name any names because I just, I'll be drummed out of the, you know, I, I only, all I have is the trust of my actors, you know, so I have to create a safe zone, but I will say that this person, it was at that same time. And the lesson he took away was be hard on the script and throw stuff out, but without any real story sense. So we'd be reading, you know, the table reading, something was great. And we we're like, Oh my God, that's so good. And he'd be like, no, Terry, like tear out the page. It's like, Well, it's not just like randomly throwing shit out. You have to know what you're doing, you know. But it was everyone's inspired by just Roseanne being tough on people. And, and, you know, that's where you go. You know, you got to you have to have a storytelling
0: sense. One of the things that I've heard about you is the fact that one of your processes after you've directed the movie is to screen it multiple, multiple times. And I'd always tell anybody who shoots a short, I tell them screen it in front of everyone you don't know. Mm hmm. Tell no one that you're the person and put a camera on top of the television facing out to the audience and then play them back simultaneously so you can see where the laughs are and where they aren't and start making your moves. They say a lot of times that story survives and jokes don't survive as much. But in your process, what's fascinating, you want... The jokes to survive and and gain more. You want to increase the jokes per per minute. Yeah. And I'm not saying reduce the story, but it seems like in your way, the story sometimes isn't as important as the holy shit moments, as I like to say in the movie (laughs) and the funny.
3: Well, I like very, very simple plots because... That allows me to hang character moments and comedy that is driven through the characters. Uh, And what I found is when plots get very complicated, you have to pick one or the other. Um, But I always want to make sure that the emotional arc is there, that the jokes are in service of the characters, even if they're... You know an extreme moment or something you know i mean like bridesmaids you know the the whole dress shop scene which became so infamous was really driven if you look at the emotional core of that it's about it's a it's the craziest way to tell a story about a person who's a woman whose shortcoming is she she won't admit she's wrong that she's in this battle with somebody that's clouding her judgment she's trying to show off so she takes them to a restaurant that is cheap trying to sell it as it's good and because of that people get food poisoning and so now the you know the uh, the revenge or the the fallout from that is somebody gets food poisoning but then it's like the funny thing about that scene is pretending everything's fine you know, first all the women are just, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I've got to get to a bathroom. They go, they have their fallout. But as that's going on, here's Kristen's character who's going like, I'm great. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. And she's sweating. <laughs> she's falling apart and her nemesis is just taking advantage of it. Like, I'm going to feed this to her. I'm going to make you admit that you fucked up. And that's the emotional core. What you, what you see on top of that is just all this craziness and people throwing up and all that. And that's the funny stuff. But the reason that scene works so well is it's the vulnerability of people and making these bad mistakes. And then, you know, Maya Rudolph running out in the street and just having to slowly die in the street as she shits her pants, you know. And but when we screen that to hear, especially when we were doing our test screenings to hear, especially women in the audience, like screaming with laughter, you go, we've hit something that people relate to this. And it's this thing of just like, that's happened to me in some way of this moment of like, Oh my God, everything's horrible. I've got to try to pretend everything's fine. And that's the humanity of it. That's the stuff I love. And that's why I'd rather have less plot and more time to just take beat by beat of the human experience and go like and let's just dig it deeper and deeper in until and, and we hit the hit the funny relatable point
0: what's well, also great about you which i've talked to a lot of people about you and who shall remain nameless <laughs> oh <Uh-oh>. and um, all <laughs> those actors i was talking about. <laughs> one of the things that you do is you create this incredibly safe environment where even if you have written the screenplay to the movie you've created an environment where you allow the actors who have improvisational chops to literally change things on the fly and where a scene could be written on the page a certain way and by the time it screens in the theater it's a shell of what it was before mm-hmm. and you allow them to do that and you have no animosity about that and a lot of writers so as you know yeah people come in they add a line and they're like could you just do it The way it is on the page. Yeah. yeah. But you don't seem to be like that. I mean, granted, you want it once your way. Sometimes I don't even care about that,
3: honestly. As long as we get the roadmap of what I need, because all the biggest thing the script and, you know, provides, especially the scenes themselves are a roadmap for what is moving the story forward and what is getting the emotional arc across. And so you're going from point A to point B in a scene. All I care about is that we get from point A to point B that I need emotionally. How we get there can happen a million different ways. And that's my biggest problem with, with a lot of writer-directors. And I've talked to actors who've worked with them. You know, these people would hire brilliant comedic minds who were great at improv and great at just being themselves and finding that thing, and I'd say, how was it? And they go, it was terrible. They wouldn't let me deviate one word from the script. My whole thing and it came you know it's taken years to kind of figure this out and a lot of it i learned from tv directing because you know there you're just in service of the the exec producers and they're like you got to say it this way and you got some actor who's you know is funnier if they could just twist it a little bit but they're trying to torture out the wording that another person person's mouth uses and then so nobody wins then because you underwhelm you know the writer and you underwhelm the audience and you don't have the actor their full powers so learned early on, like, no, let them make it their own uh, because then you get their personality. It, for me, it's like look, you work so hard to get to that set. First, you're developing for a long time and then you're dealing with the studio and you're getting your budget and your prep and blah, blah, everything. Everything is, you know, eats you up. But then when you get to the set, it's like, OK, we got an hour to shoot this quick. OK, say the line, don't deviate. And, and we're out of here. You've completely blown the whole reason why you spent all that time trying to get to that set, which is now we have human beings. We have a amazing these amazing devices that capture what those human beings do in that moment. They capture every single micro detail of a popping vein of a hair out of place of a lift of an eyebrow. Why would you then say, all right, now let's just not let's just cut all the humanity out of this and just say the stuff I said. And we're just going to fine tune the way I wrote it. That's criminal because then when you get these amazingly talented, but look, if you have actors that just that's all they are is great at reciting lines, that's fine. I don't want that. I want lightning in a bottle. I want moments that happen when you and I are talking and you make a joke and I laugh or I make a joke and you laugh. That happens once. And if you go, you know, it's like being on a table and somebody then they, they get a laugh and then they repeat the same joke and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> now, you, now you've blown it. <laughs> like that's what I need to get. That's why I cross shoot as much as I can. So I'm getting both people on camera at the same time so that they can be surprised that happens once. And as an audience, you're like, you have a real moment that you see because how many times we watch movies all the time, especially with romantic comedies. I found it a lot where you go like, I can see the page. I can see the writing on the page as they're talking and it's clever and it's this and that, but like it doesn't mean anything to me because
0: it's not people talking. Tell our audience, what's your process as a writer when you're writing a television show (laughs) in terms of cradle to grave when the idea strikes you and how your process works that Mm -hmm. makes you successful and the difference between the process of a director only Mm. who's just directing a project that's already been written yeah,
3: I mean, I tend to, I do a lot of writing on on even projects that I didn't write, and I work with the writers a lot, whoever it is. You know, like Katie Dipple and I, you know, we always, that's what I love about Katie, because she comes from TV, and so she's willing to, you know, not be religious and precious about stuff, you know, because she's a brilliant writer. Um, I mean, the difference between, like, TV and movies, I mean, they're not really a big difference, but the difference being that, you're telling part of a story that is then going to continue beyond <clears throat> beyond that. So when you're writing a TV episode, you know, like doing Freaks and Geeks and stuff, it was fun to just take the characters from, you know, from point A to point B. It didn't have to be that far, just enough to go to propel them, you know, through – through a some change or some realization or some experience they have that changes them a little bit.
0: In the beginning, were you an A story, B story guy or were you a guy that just didn't matter? I didn't matter.
3: I I knew you had to do A
0: and B story. And and
3: especially because of Freaks and Geeks, it was easy because we had two different groups of people. But for me, it just was more what's the most compelling story. And then I love when one story kind of leads you into another and they kind of tie together. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, it, for me, it's more just what's the story or what do I want to tell? And what can I get the most out of these characters by putting them through? But that to me is, that's, that's why I love writing movies. Um, because the challenge of the movies is you have to tell a complete story in a limited amount of time that has to end in a way that is satisfying and doesn't need to go on. You don't need to have a sequel. You know, I mean, it's not you know unless you're doing Empire Strikes Back where you've got to establish things. You know, okay, we can serial, serialize at the end. But even that, as much as I love that movie, I remember when I saw it the first time as a kid, I was like, Oh, really? What? I got, now how long I got to wait for the next chapter? But you know, with movies, it's it's. You know, who are the characters? I like to build from the characters first. I, I don't like to kind of go, what's the high concept? And now let let shove stuff into it. It's more fun to go like, here's the characters I like, or I want to do a character like this. And sometimes it's an actor I want to work with and go like, what would be the best way to then put that character, that personality through their paces in a way that would lead to a satisfying arc? and an entertaining storytelling you know, process and then build up from there. And so it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you just have a concept and it's like, oh, what would be the greatest character personality to go into this situation?
0: And what's the shortest amount of time it ever took you to write an episode of television and the shortest amount of time it ever took you to write a film?
3: Um, actually, well, I, I, when I wrote the pilot for Freaks and Geeks, I wrote that pretty quickly for being something that was – original. I wrote it in under two weeks. I was out on the road with this independent film I had done and I just had this fire burning inside me for <clears> it <throat> because my friend, uh, 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 Matt Reeves had just created, um, Felicity with JJ Abrams. And so I watched the pilot for that and had always wanted to do like a show about my experience in high school. Cause I felt i never saw it represented. It was always cool kids or whatever. And we were never in that group and, um, went, Oh, the hour, kind of dramedy format that seems like the perfect way to do this and so it just kind of opened up some of my head of like this is where I can tell these stories I've been writing a book about my high school experiences so I had things like the dodgeball game and all that were already kind of written out and so yeah just kind of plowed into that and it was really cathartic it just kind of poured out of me and you know and it was able to kind of address things in my life You know, when I was a kid, I was an only child and always wished I had an older sister. And so I was putting together a reason I was going to go was be an only child who lives next to a family of all these kids because that's how I grew up. It's like, wait, no, I can create the sister I always wanted. And then I can put her through the crises that I was going through as at that point, like a mid 30s guy who was having this crisis of faith and, and everything on my religion. You know, I'd been about it religiously and I was getting away from it. And so was able to pour all that into this 16 year old girl who you know because a 16 th- year old girl is about the same maturity level as a guy in his mid 30s, and so she became my funnel for all the angst I was going through. And yet, I, and then with the I was able to do the comedy and the angst of, of the former me through for through the you know the young the young boy character. And so that really poured out. So that was pretty quick. And then I think the fastest I ever wrote a script might have been Spy. Um, which I just got so hot on that idea because I've been dying to do a James Bond movie. And it was always my agents like, see if you can get me one. It's like, who's ever going to hire a comedy director to direct James Bond. <laughs> so I, I suddenly went after we finished the heat, I was sitting there when Skyfall had come out and I was just like, God damn it. I want to do one. It's like, wait a minute. I work with all these funny women. Let me write a female James Bond movie, but make it my own and, and tell stories, you know, insecurities that I've had in my life through that and then pitched it to the studio. I didn't have a story. I said, like, this is a big idea. And they're like, go write it. And I hold up in my apartment in New York for about a month all in and just kick this thing out. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was, that's great when it comes out that way. Cause I've had other projects where you just like, you're just trying to push them out. And sometimes I feel like that might be an indication that it's not the right idea. Although sometimes i push through them and they've been, they've been fine. But I think there's, there's nothing like, a, a you know just a runaway freight train of creativity that tells you you're kind of on the right track
0: and the process of a director from when you have a script that you make the notes you go to the studio you say hey listen I'd love to do this yeah and you give them your take on everything what's the process there that's for you
3: well for me I just I work the script really hard I do is go through it very hard on the script and, and and kind of make sure that I can see My biggest thing is I want to make sure characters are acting like real people. Even if they're extreme and they're extreme comedy characters, they have to have a true inner life and they have to believe what they're doing and they have to, as the writer, you have to make sure that the writer loved those characters and, and wasn't looking down on the characters. What I hate is, you know, and I see in movies all the time where you go like, clearly the filmmakers don't like this character and they're going like, oh, look how stupid this character is. I don't like that because even the dumbest people you meet, even the meanest people you meet, even the biggest villains you meet, villains you meet, all think they are doing something right. You know, it's the George Bernard Shaw quote, which I've said this in interviews before, he had this one little maxim he wrote, which is all men mean well. And to me, that is that's the key to writing to me, which is no matter who that person is, they've got a reason why they're doing it. The most horrendous villain in the world's got a reason that's not just I'm just going to create mayhem. And if he does, it's like because I see the world as being this and I want to make my comment or I think this is going to be helpful for the world to spin it on its you know head and get rid of the people that I don't like, whatever it is. That's what you need. And so that's what I really go through and make sure these characters are that way. And then figure out who I want to cast in those roles. And then what I do is early on, I mean, like a couple months beforehand, I'll get the actors together either separately, sometimes in groups of two, sometimes the whole bunch of them, and just we'll read through scenes, but we'll read a scene and then it's like, we'll play around with that. And like, let's play with this and play with that, you know, and so I can find what their real dynamic is. Because again, it's, you know, we write a script and a script is written, it exists as a, like it's almost like a novel. It's a piece of writing, and it can be great, but it doesn't mean that's going to work on the screen. It doesn't mean those relationships and those you know lines and everything are going to feel real. They can read great, but one and that's it's so helpful. Once somebody these actors start talking, you go like, oh, it just it always there's something needs to be done. Some adjustment you need to find the character. I mean, the greatest that I had recently with that was with Spy because. I hired, I'd worked with Rose on, on Bridesmaids and she's so brilliantly talented. Rose Byrne. Yeah. Rose Byrne is so amazing. Um, but I kind of, so I kind of hired her sight unseen for this role of this villainous we had and it was, I wrote it for like a, like a bratty kind of rich 19 year old girl from, you know, another country. And so it was written very kind of, it had that, that kind of attitude to it. But you know, here's Rose who's this very, you know, classy person. And so I got her and Melissa together and they were reading and, you know, and Rose was, you know, very dutifully kind of reading it the way I wrote it. And it was just like, I was like, Oh, it just doesn't look right coming out of you that way. It's just something's wrong. So I was like, well, let's try this. Right. And we just kind of went through a bunch of different things. And she's so brilliantly talented with accents and stuff. I was like, well, try it with your Australian accent. Try it, this, try that. And it was only like after several attempts that it was like, well, maybe try a British accent. And so she went into this very calm, classy accent and saying kind of the same lines. And they just become a hundred times funnier because it was these really terrible things, but said in such a, you know, like almost respectful way. And I was like, that's it. That's the character. And so that was like, Oh my God, I got it. I know how to rewrite the script. Now I know what to do, you know, and send them away immediately. But then the other side of that was that same day I brought in Jason Statham to read through his part, which I had written very specifically, you know, for him, um, knowing it would be funny. I think it would be funny if it's, if he you know, was saying these things straight. And so he comes in and he's like, so how, you know, so this is a comedy. Like, should I try to be funny? So like, Jason, do not try to be funny. Read it the way you would do any of your movies dead straight. He reads literally every scene he wrote read read through he did it once i was like that's so funny stop and halfway through the script i said like stop you're done go home we're finished (laughs) and i just knew like he was just going to be gold because he just he he would just commit so hardcore and so when we're on the set with him just started writing the most ridiculous lines we could partly going like is he going to punch me like will he say this like i get jokes and it's like try this. And I would say it and he would just laugh. And then he'd go, all right. And he'd take one shot at it. Then he'd take another shot and he would nail it. And it was, so it's, but it's all that mixing of like, how do we find, how do we service each person? So when they come to the set, they can just slip right in and I don't have to, you know, suddenly we're not finding the character on the set. And I've had to do that sometimes too, when you just don't get rehearsal time with somebody. Um, but even at that, it's like, it's pretty easy if you're not going Stick to this, do it this way. It's like, let's find it, you know, because that's, oh, it's and that's just brilliant when that happens. I mean, you know, this Ghostbuster that I just did, Chris Hemsworth, I didn't get to work with him at all, but I had lunch with him and just saw him and saw what was funny about him and loved his accent. I never, you know, you don't hear him doing his, his Australian accent. So I was like, okay. Chris, here's what I know. I want you to just come and play it an Australian, do your normal accent. But it was written kind of like he was this more of like a slacker guy who was going to come in and sort of not care about the job. But he got to set, and just he was so affable and he was playing it just kind of friendly that that became really you go oh that's great. And then when we did this interview scene where the the Ghostbusters are interviewing him, I you know cross shot it, set it up, and just he just started kind of improvising with them, and it became very clear very quickly that him playing not stupid, but just kind of dopey was really funny. And he just, he could, he could improvise that because he just was said everything very straight, but he had this really funny take on things where he's like, oh no, that's not what I meant. And he would correct something. And like the girls were looking at me like, did you write him that joke? Cause I, I didn't write, that's him. <laughs> he's improvising. Like none of us thought he was going to come in and be like a master improviser. and And it just, his character is just
0: so funny on screen. Awesome. Let's go way, way back. I want you to tell me how you grew up, where you grew up, the socioeconomic dynamic, mm-hmm. and what you consider to be your first break. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, right outside in the, the, the
3: suburbs in Mount Clemens, Michigan, which is about 20 minutes outside of Detroit. And, uh, grew up in the, I mean, I was born in 62, but really kind of grew up in the seventies. And that was when Detroit went through a very hard time with the auto industry collapsing. And, and, you know, so everything, and I would lived in a very blue collar neighborhood and was around that, grew up around that. But, uh, my father owned an army surplus store at the time. I mean, that was what he did his whole life. And he Basically serviced all the people who were out of work, who didn't have money, because it was you know a cheaper place you could get clothes and you know sporting goods and all that. But mostly the, like the surplus was the stuff you get. And he sold like cheap jeans and all that. He really catered to you know, not to a high a high economic you know socioeconomic uh, status there, and it was it was a very cool thing to see because um, he was. He was very committed to making sure that the image of the store didn't look like he was taking advantage of his customers. Uh, Like my mom always, you know, the store did very well. He made good money. And my mom always wanted a Cadillac. She just wanted a Cadillac so badly. And he said, you can't have a Cadillac because what it will tell my shoppers is that I'm overcharging them. You know, if the owner of the store is suddenly driving a fancy car, he's taking advantage of them. And that was how he set up the store also was like, he never made it fancy. It was always all his like shelves and displays were all things that were gotten from other stores that had gone out of business before Yep. Things were put out in cardboard boxes that you cut, the, you know, cut the flaps off and you write in marker on the front and everything, you know, and things didn't even have individual like kind of prices, you know, with like off of a sticker machine. They were just written on with these tags and you had these these grease pens that we wrote everything with. And it just had a very distinct look. And it's, you know, it was in an old in an old uh, uh, supermarket that he bought uh, old A&P. Uh, but it was, you know, down and dirty. And that was the kind of the world I grew up around where his whole thing was the customer's king said like, you know, I don't care how crazy they are, whatever they, they, they are in here. We are in service of them. And so I feel that way about movies. That's why I always am so loathe to kind of get down on audiences. Cause they like something that we in the business consider to be stupid or us in comedy go like, Oh, that's so lowbrow. And that's, it's like, you no, know, people like what they like. And we are the assholes if we're like you're stupid for 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 you know for liking that. And he was all about this customer service, and so that that always left a big impression on me. He was very beloved in the in the community because of that, and and he took great care of his employees. I mean, he would send you know these some of the stock boys or some of the women that worked for him or who didn't have money, he would send them to community college, you know, and, and and put them through that, and you know, he didn't have to and. I really admired that about him. He was a really
0: great guy. Awesome. And so what was your inspiration for getting into the business?
3: Well, I just wanted to do it. I just, I, from when I was about five years old, just decided I wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be in showbiz. It just, it's, I, it was television, everything left an impression on me. And I had enough of an ego where it's was like, I want to be that. I want to be the center of attention because I'm an only child, you know, and I was bullied. I mean, eventually, but at that point, I had done this one thing when I was in kindergarten, I think, where I'd play an elf. It's in one of my books where I had to play this elf and I come out and it's goofy. And my dad had kind of, Outfitted me from his army surplus store. I all the other kids had these professional elf costumes. I don't know where they got them. And I was wearing like old army socks with like a piece of foam in the front that made my feet look like they were gigantic and like old army underwear with these suspenders and some hat with a, you know, like a cotton ball stuck on top. And I just remember walking out and getting this enormous laugh. Clearly everybody was laughing at me, but that's all I heard was like, Oh my God, I'm, you know, I, I love that feeling. And then when I was in second grade, I did this, uh, for choir. They, um, We did Yellow Bird, the uh, the the Calypso classic, and they wanted to have a little band playing. And so they gave us like instruments and they gave me a conga drum that went around my shoulder like Ricky Ricardo and put this doofy hat on me. And so when they were singing, I would just started playing the congas. But I started doing this like weird kind of dance where I was sort of like moving around and it started getting big laughs. And so I started milking it more and getting bigger laughs and milking it more and just huge laughs, you know, it was an easy, easy, easy crowd. Uh, and then going back to my classroom and I was in love with my teacher, Miss Hill at the time. And one of my friends came and I said like, oh my God, Miss Hill was laughing so hard. She was crying. And I was like, this is great. This is how I want everything to go. I can, you know, I, to be able to make people laugh like that and to control how people like you because of it. That was just—it was just too infectious, and just the just the the juice you would get from hearing laughs. That's like this adrenaline hit that you get, you know. And uh, and I've never gotten past that. That's why I love doing these test screenings. There's nothing more exciting when you make a movie and like the first time you put it up, something that either expected we get a laugh or didn't expect we get a laugh gets a huge response. It's just like. You know, you just come to that's what I live for more than, you know, awards or anything. Like, that's what I get the most satisfaction from is like an audience laughing at what you did.
0: I've heard you say before that comedy is a lot like drama and drama is a lot like comedy. Mm-hmm. When's the last time you cried and why? <laughs> oh,
3: God. I'm not a crier. I'm, I'm very. You know, I, when I was a kid, I would cry the drop of a hat, and I hated it. I hated that I had that weakness. <laughs> I consider it to be a weakness. I did back then because it would happen in school. You know, somebody would come and punch me or somebody mean it, and I would start crying. So I was the kid that cried in school, you know, in grade school. That was horrendous to me. So I really, I mean, I, <clears throat> I've i made myself probably probably to great health detriments. i I trying to think the last time I cried. I think it might have been when when one of our dogs died, but even at that, I will, I will have like a, like a, a moment of just like breakdown and I'll just pull it back together and go like, and I hate seeing that kind of vulnerability myself.
0: Well, you know how some actors and writers and directors, an emotional moment happens. That's the validation after like LeBron James goes through 10 months of hard work and he finally wins against all odds. And as a director, you're working at least a full year yeah. on something. You make a commitment to direct something. People don't understand that on the outside is that it's a year of your life, at, at least. least. Yeah. And so when it comes out and that weekend happens, aren't there moments where you just lock yourself in a bathroom oh, stall yeah. and cry and say, we did it?
3: I don't cry. I go into this really dark
0: place and it's just major depression.
3: I mean, I remember the worst was uh, when I did this movie, I Am David. Um That was about the 11-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, it was my follow-up to Freaks and Geeks. And my mom had died, so... And this story, this book was sent to me about a kid trying to find his mother. It's it's read by all children in, like, European schools, but it's not known here. Um, And it just just hit me at the right moment. I felt like I knew how to tell that. And, you know, it was at that stage where you go, like, oh, if I can do a drama, then I'll really be (laughs) classy. And, you know, so... Spent a year making it, but then we couldn't get a distributor for it. So then there was another two years of just trying to get a distributor for distributor for it, getting out there, getting it picked up by a certain distributor. Then right when it was about to go big, the, the head of the, that studio would you know be fired, and then the new people didn't want it, so you were shopping it somewhere else. So it was three years between starting this thing and getting this thing out. And I invested all my emotional, you know, coinage in it, and this company putting it out just didn't care about it. They didn't know what to do with it. Jim Caviezel was in it. I'd cast him before; he had done Passion of the Christ. In the time we were trying to get it out, that had come out and been a big hit. So then he had like ten minutes in the movie. He's great, but he's barely—you know—he's not into it that much. Suddenly, they hang the whole marketing campaign on him. He's the big face on the poster. The my kid, who's the star, has got it peeking out around behind him. And, uh, we do a test screening. I, you know, this is a drama, so I didn't test it really. And they wanted to test screening. So we did it out in Irvine and get, you know, full house, everybody shows up and it tests really high. People love it. They're walking out of the theater and I, and we're celebrating and I see the people running the test screening, holding these big stacks of big stack of white envelopes and they're handing each person an envelope. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, when we told people what the movie is about, nobody wanted to come, so we had to promise we'd give them $5 each. I was like, well, then we're dead. We're completely dead. How are we ever going to sell this movie? And so they they did the worst ad campaign. And I, you know, but like Stuart Copeland had done the music for the movie, this amazing soundtrack. They took like... Music from some library and put the da 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 kind of thing. And it's just like, I was like, who are these ads for? This looks terrible. You know, so I'm just going the whole time, I'm going like, the sky's falling, you guys. This is you're you're blowing this. And then they released it, They're not even in LA or New York. They just released it in the middle of the country. They just re- did research wherever Passion of the Christ did the best and they put it out there. And then like, they put it at one theater in outside of LA and we went out to try to see it. And we pulled the theater and we go like, there's no sign for it, there's nothing. And we like, is that, is I Am David playing? I was like, oh yeah, well that's, yeah, it's down the hall. So literally you had to know it was there. <laughs> and you go down the hall and there was one poster up. So, so in the midst of all this, so, you know, obviously opening weekend, I get a call from the head of distribution and I'm in the bathtub. I always remember in the bathtub and it's like a, it's either Saturday or Sunday, I forget. And the guy's just like, well, guess what? And he's just super mean. He's like, your movie bombed, blah, blah, blah. And he's just like yelling at me. And it's like, and I'm just like putting the phone. Out. I'm just sitting there. I just sat there for like an hour. It just I couldn't move. Just like staring down at the water. And, and But didn't cry. It was more just like gutted. Just absolutely gutted. Because you go like, I spent so much time and energy on this. But here's the thing. With movie. And look, the movie is what it is. It's not my greatest work. But it exists. You know? And that's what I love about the recorded medium. You know? That's why I stopped being a stand-up comedian. Because I did it for years. And... You would end the show and you'd have a great show. You'd have a, you know, and you would be like, okay, the next night I got to do it again. I got to do it again. And is that feeling of like, I want to do something perfect. I want to get something perfect, control everything of it. I can get it polished and then let it exist forever. And then you can go like, there it is. And I don't have to, then I get all the time and energy went into making it as perfect as I could make it. And then it's done, but then it lives forever, whether
0: people see it or not. Got it. <laughs> Your focus now is on female-driven movies. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought of like this? Go with me here. Uh, it's going to seem a little crazy. Have you do ever it. thought about do doing it. a situation where you do remakes with women like The Blues Sisters, <laughs> Women in Black, or uh, Reservoir go. Bitches, yeah, or something like that? Next.
3: Uh, you know what? I think I am. I think I, I'm one and done with doing uh, uh, remakes or reboots. I, this was very fun, and it was a, it was a property that I that I love. And I, I'm not saying I wouldn't do another one of these, but I don't, I, I don't think I can, you know what it is, there's something so satisfying about doing your own
0: idea. Well, that's what surprised me when yeah. I saw that you did Ghostbusters, because you're on a path where you're writing, you're directing, you're producing, you're in control of every element. Mm-hmm. And what surprised me when I saw that you took the gig doing ghostbusters if i have the permission to speak freely please do is that you already won doing the trifecta (laughs) okay you're writing Mm. producing directing you won Mm. and with your own stuff when you go and you take over a franchise everybody has expectations everybody has an opinion Mm. of how okay should it be this way should it be that way we think this should have been this way. Yeah. And then there's the money that the original made. I'm not saying you feel the pressure, but the world is like, okay, the original Ghostbusters made this. But the fact is, is that you have this pressure that you put on yourself and you made the choice to put on yourself. Mm-hmm. And and presumably, mm-hmm. like Kevin Durant, hmm. you don't make decisions based on money. You make decisions right, no. based on creative situations. Very much so. So... I had a theory of why you did this movie. Oh, please tell. I had a theory that you wanted to break some new stars <laughs> and that you wanted to create relationships like you had with Rose mm-hmm. and Melissa mm-hmm. and Judd mm-hmm. with new people like Leslie Jones and people like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that really satisfies you from the very beginning with Freaks and Geeks where you broke all those great actors. Yeah. I feel like that's something that's a big part of your life and your inspiration. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big reasons you did this. Am I wrong? I mean, no, you're not
3: wrong. That That's a really
0: good analysis of it. Because uh, I was always,
3: I was, had been looking for another ensemble comedy because I loved how Bridesmaids worked that way. And it was a, jo- a way to showcase so many talented people. And, um... Yeah, it was kind of this weird, perfect storm that wasn't perfect when it first popped up because I'd been called, about, I was called by Ivan about it when I was shooting Spy. And uh, you know, my history, back history with it was when I was uh, co-EPing on on The Office, uh, two of our writers, uh, Lee Eisenberg and Gene, Gene Stupnitsky, were hired to write Ghostbusters 3. <clears throat> and that, that was at a point where I was pretty deep in movie jail after Honey Company Miners had bombed and I'm David had bombed. And I remember just going like, oh my God, if I could ever be at a place in my career where they would ask me to direct Ghostbusters, that would be like the greatest thing ever. And that just always stuck with me. And obviously I really never would back then. So when I got the call from Ivan, it was like, it's, it happened. The thing I wanted so much happened, but then it was a sequel script. And it was, it was a very good script written by amazing writers. And, uh, I just suddenly I had more to lose because, you know, I, you know, bridesmaids in the heat had done well and i was feeling really good about where spy was going and so then it was like gosh i should be careful now and i don't know if i can do this sequel i don't know if i know how to make this good and i don't know if i like the fact that the old team is showing up and just going to help the new team become ghostbusters and hand them Hand them technology and all that, so I turned it down, which was very weird to me because, like, wow, this is what I wanted, and I just turned it down. The power of no, Paul. Yeah, well, yeah, it was crazy because then, um, then Amy Pascal was on me about it, and I think oh. I turned it down again. I turned it on a couple of times, and then she said, "Just come over to the studio. Let's just talk about a project to do." Mm-hmm. And when the head of the studio calls you over
0: onto the low couch, <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, no, no. Fortunately, we had lunch, so that's the weight of my heart. If you want to get me to do anything, buy me lunch or uh,
0: or a nice suit. Yeah, well. well and then, then you'll
3: get anything if you buy me a nice suit. <laughs> that is the key to me. <laughs> but, you know, and she basically said, like, you know, this is a, you know, this is an amazing franchise. This is amazing idea sitting there. And it really kind of stuck with me. And I think that in my head, I was like, yeah, and it is. And it's an ensemble, you know, and gosh, this would be. But but I didn't. My first thought was not let's cast it with the funny women. I, I was just kind of going like, oh, I guess you've got to. I'd have to figure out how to kind of recreate that n- thing that Ghostbusters the original one, had. And I was walking around at home going like, well, okay, if I was going to do this, how would I do it? And weirdly, you would think it'd be my first thought, but it was kind of the last thought I had was like, wait a minute, I should do it with all the funny women I know. And it was weirdly like a big epiphany to me. <laughs> like, you know, it seems so obvious. And that was like, well, should they be their daughters? Should be, you know, and I was like, no, there's that problem again. They're just going to be handed stuff. It's like, well, if I can reboot it, make it a new origin story. Then I got excited for it because I think the idea behind Ghostbusters is brilliant because I, I love I've been wanting to do a scary comedy because we, you know, we had some scare, you know, action scares in the heat and spy. And I loved how the audience would react, that they would scream and be tense and laugh at the same time. Like you can get two emotions going at once. That's like, you know, bonanza. And so when, oh, this, I sincerely thought this, this would be great. And I know how to do this. And if I'm rebooting it, it's a way to make it more of an original. It's not an original idea. And I would have great angst all through this process, you know, for the last two years, moments where you go like, shit, I wish I had thought of Ghostbusters. Like it would drive me crazy occasionally. Like this isn't my original idea because I felt like it felt like I was, you know, making it my own. But at the same time, like no, it's not an original idea. It's got stuff, you know, from the past. But I don't know. I just felt like I had, you know, all you can do when you direct a movie, you know, you're in for a year or two. It's got to be like picking. You got to fall in love. I mean, it has got to like, you know, be falling in love with with a partner who you just go like, oh, I have to have this every day. I'll never get tired of this. And that's the thing that gets you going. And this one at that moment, I was like, you know what? I got the juice to do this because I have a lot of ideas on this, you know, but then. When I don't think I can write this by myself. And so I said, oh, if I do this with Katie Dippold, who we have so much fun working together. We both wanted to do a scary comedy. And we Katie had actually we broke the story. And Katie wrote the the sequel to The Heat, which was like a Silence of the Lambs type thing. And it was really scary. And uh, we never got to make it because Sandra just didn't want to do another another movie. Uh, and uh, so it just seemed like the perfect thing. So, yeah, so I, I guess that's I just kind of got. I got excited about it. And I still am. I'm really happy I did it. I mean, you know, there's been times with all the all the political stuff and the Internet outrage and all that where you go like, Ugh. you know, the, the bummer for me was just I'm used to not being a divisive character. I'm used to kind of being, you know, people are like what I do. And I'm kind of, you know, it's been always been kind of an underdog and because I represent the underdogs. And so this was that was that was the only thing where you're like, oh, man, I'm like a villain to some people. And that's you know, look, I accept it and that's fine, but it's, it's not my natural state. And so that's why I think, you know, occasionally I have lashed out at the bullies because it brings back my only thing that gets me crazy are bullies. That's the, I can put up with anything, but bullies, it's my one bugaboo because I grew up with bullies and I saw my friends bullied and that's the only time I like want to, you know,
0: go after people <laughs> got it heading into the final roundup because we don't have much time i always do this at the end so i, I hope you don't mind no as we're gonna do a six degrees of separation better mention a name mm-hmm. just be one thing that comes to mind could be one <laughs> word anything and whatever you want and we'll just like a. that's food, great it's like, like, a spe- like a speed round i like this <laughs> all right tom hanks a friend who i'm dying to work with Got it
3: seth Rogen. I- I was there at the beginning. I'd love to be there for him. Yeah, still, he's enormous talent. Huge. I'm so impressed. This is more than one word. I'm so impressed with the amount of stuff he and Evan are able to do. I'm
0: I'm just blown away by how deep they are. A person who I would always watch his movies because every character he plays is so dark and real. Jason Segel. <clears throat>
3: oh gosh, yes. I love Jason. I love Jason. He is. He is. Um, Fearless and wide open. Sandra Bullock, Uh, such a enormous talent. Uh, Honored to have gotten to work with her. Ellen DeGeneres, fantastic. Um, Really figured out how to be herself and to make make that so beloved. Bob Newhart. A hero. Got to work with him once and was in awe. Sitting and listening to him and Tom Paxton tell stories was the greatest moment of my life. Jude Law. Such a gentleman. Enormous talent. Desperate to work with him again. Justin Timberlake. Love JT. Love him dying to work with him. <laughs> this, I, you're hitting all the people I love. I, I think he is so talented and so amazingly funny. And he just needs. We got to get him the, the perfect role
0: edie falco
3: in love in love so wonderful to work with such a professional and just no nonsense james garner oh gosh didn't get to spend enough time with james garner but was in awe of him got to work with him at the end of his career and uh just was so admiring Kristen Wiig, in love Absolutely in love. My, 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 if I was not married, (laughs) she would be my dream girl. (laughs) James Franco. Oh, enormous talent. Uh, Knew that there was a depth there. Had no idea how deep the depth was. (laughs)
0: Last one, Melissa McCarthy.
3: (sighs) Amazing. Uh, What can you say? Um, The heavens opened up and dropped down this amazing talent Funny thing with us is we never, each project, it's never like, oh, we're going to work together again. It just happens. It just, you write the role and you're like, you know what, you know, who'd be great for this, <laughs> you know? And, uh, yeah, just really inspiring.
0: Your proudest moment in show business.
3: Um, weirdly, I think was when I won the DGA award for directing, uh, the dinner party episode of the office, just cause I'd never won anything for something I had done and, uh, I'm such a, you know, so honored to be in the DGA and so didn't expect to win that that was probably, I just remember walking on air for weeks after that. I, I carried that award around with me for weeks, like a crazy person,
0: the greatest Holy shit moment that ever happened on a set. <laughs>
3: Gosh. Oh, that's a, wow. That's a good one. Um, uh, I I I think it's well. You, ah, that's a tough one because I I want to get this right. What, what, there's moments where I just was like, oh my god! I, I think the one it is just it's just a, the dumbest joke. But it was in Spy when we were on the airplane with Rose Byrne, and she just had to do this line where she goes like, "What a stupid toast!" and. I was like, oh, call it a stupid fucking toast. Oh, what a stupid fu- and then I was like, What a stupid fucking retarded toast, which is terrible. Like, we should not use the R word at all, but it just felt like her character would say something so politically incorrect. And the way she said it, I just laughed so hard. I remember walking around for 10 minutes just, like, celebrating, going, like, that's, like, the greatest thing, a joke that happens in the moment that you build and somebody nails it. I was just so happy. And I was going, like, I know I'm going to have so much trouble for this. And the head of the studio is not going to want me to have it in because we should not say that word. But it just – I had to commit to it because – It just felt like the perfect moment coming out of somebody so classy's mouth. So I regret it. And it was made me laugh.
0: Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Mm, um, It was probably when when I am
3: David bombed. Uh, What it showed me is that I should not be doing drama, that I should be doing comedy. The goal of my life is to make people laugh and to make them happy and have a great time. If I can teach them something during it, if I can make a commentary about the human condition, that's great. And I always try to do that. But if I can make people happy and just forget their troubles for a couple of hours in a movie theater, I'm
1: thrilled.
0: Last question. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for the young writer director who's hanging out as a kid in an army surplus store somewhere (laughs) in the North Midwest Mm -hmm. who has a dollar and a dream knows they want to become something knows they want to have the kind of career that you have. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for them as well as the actor? Yeah. Well, my
3: advice is you have no excuse not to do it now because you have with the dollar in your pocket, more access to everything than any of us had in the course of mankind, and especially those of us who came up trying to be in showbiz pre-internet. Because with your phone, you can shoot high definition; <laughs> it's going to look beautiful. And it, you know, for what I had to spend thirty-five thousand dollars to shoot sixteen millimeter to shoot this little movie that took place in a field that turned out to be I am uh, life sold separately. That We had all kinds of problems. It looks grainy. It looks terrible. You could, with your phone, shoot this thing. It looks professional. You've got your laptop. It's got editing equipment that comes bundled with it. You can cut it, and you've got an internet connection. You can upload it, and the world can see it. The caution I will tell you is make sure when you put it out, it's good. Do your test screening, show it to people, get advice from people, work hard on the script, make sure you're telling a story you know and you relate to that you have a take on and make it as good as you can. Because once it's out there, it's out there. And people like us in, in, in the business, we scour the Internet. I have a person who works in my office who who does that. And they just go on YouTube and they look at all this stuff and you find it. But if you see something that's terrible, you do mark like, oh, that person. It's hard to get a second viewing from anybody so make sure it's great but do it if you're if if you want to get in this business and you're not doing that then you shouldn't be in the business because you have to be a self-starter you have to be self-motivated I'm a kid from Michigan who knew nobody when I, I knew nothing about showbiz you know I moved out to California didn't know anybody out here and just by going You know, I'm going to do it and go to film school and not even I didn't not even I had to go to film school. Just saying I'm not going to take no for an answer. Became a stand up, did whatever I could to showcase. If you want to do it, you got to do it. Be driven. Do it, do it, do it. And if you don't, don't do it, because if you don't have that kind of drive, it's never going to
0: happen. Paul, that was amazing, extraordinary. I can't believe this interview is better than you're dressed. Ah, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. Barry doesn't say I'm
3: just wearing underwear right now. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope it was okay for you.
3: Fantastic. Thanks, Barry. It's was really, uh, really a pleasure.
0: I appreciate it. It was an honor meeting you. Thank you, sir. And how you? Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Frederick Dykes from Great Falls, Virginia. Congratulations, Frederick. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, this is by Soul Writer, August 1st, 2013, BK Strikes Again, five stars, He or she writes informative, inspirational, and motivational. Barry's a showbiz OG who asked all the right questions. Subscribe now. Well, thank you, Soul Writer. Congratulations. And as always, this is Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
2: They say it's the glory. I'll scream and game. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. Cause they have all to gain.